The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Matters. Uh, If you're wondering why Dennis Ramundi is not here, because you're familiar with the podcast he and I did for seven years. That that generation has ended, and uh, the archive, however, lives on. And if you go to spiritmatterstalk.com and the YouTube channel of the same name, you'll find uh, nearly 300 interviews with uh, spiritual teachers and experts of various kinds, all free. Please avail yourself. And here on this new version, on a new platform, I am continuing the tradition of conversations with a diverse range of wise people who can help you along your own path. Today's guest is no exception. I'm happy to welcome Ariel Ford. I knew Ariel by reputation a few decades ago because she was an agent and a publicist who represented some of the best-known self-help and spiritual authors, not me, unfortunately. And then she went on to become an author herself, publishing a number of nonfiction books, including... Wabi Sabi Love, which I definitely want to ask her about because Wabi Sabi is a concept dear to my heart, and The Soulmate Secret, which uh, led to her becoming a widely respected coach and public speaker on the subject of love and relationships. And now she's published her first novel, The Love Thief, and since its uh, theme is at least in part spiritual transformation and its setting is largely in a place in India I'm very familiar with. I thought it would be a great idea to have Ariel join us and for a conversation. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you. It's really, really great to see you. It's uh we haven't been in touch a lot, but I you don't know this, but I stalk you. <laughs> I am honored to be stalked (laughs) by you. Thank you. So let's talk about the love thief first. Um, Tell me the, well, tell us, tell the listeners the origin story. You've you've written a lot of nonfiction. You've done all these other things I mentioned. Why a novel? And why this novel? Exactly. Yes. So it was never on my to-do list to write a novel ever. And the book came to me like a movie. It just kept unfolding in my head and I kept pushing it away. I did not want to write a novel. I don't know how to write a novel. I, I have no problem writing nonfiction, but 
Fiction is not the same thing. The only thing that nonfiction and fiction share is words. But how you put those words together, it's like, I, I always, the way I explain it to my friends, it's like, imagine that you did Manny petties for a living. You were excellent at doing nails and toes. And then one day somebody handed you a scalpel and said, do brain surgery. That's how much harder writing fiction is. And I, I didn't want to do it. Uh, but I made a deal with God. I said to God, if I can manifest a $7,000 business class ticket to India, that will be a sign that I have to write this book. And I thought, I'm so safe. That's not going to happen. 48 hours later, I had the ticket in my hand. So off I went to Rishikesh to do all this research for this story that was filling up my mind. It, essentially, it's it's a story about a uh, a woman, a really lovely 38-year-old all-American woman whose biggest dream in life is to get married and have children and two dogs and the white picket fence. And it's not happening for her until it does. And she meets this Prince Charming. He sweeps her off her feet. She falls madly in love and then discovers that he's basically a sociopath and her heart is broken. Her dreams are crushed. And uh, the good news is karma intervenes. So it's it's a romantic thriller with a revenge subplot <laughs> and Ooh. a surprise ending. And the majority of it takes place in Rishikesh because my my heroine is not a believer. She grew up as uh, with a single mom, an only child. And the mother was a baby boomer, new ager, going on Esther Hick cruises, hanging dream catchers over her crib kind of person. And so Holly is a reaction to all of that. She's not a believer. And yet she ends up in India and has a series of spiritual and mystical events that not, not only heal her broken heart, but change her life. Well, as somebody who only wanted to write novels, and ended up writing mostly nonfiction, um, and then did write a novel, and is now working on the sequel to that novel 30 years later. Um, I can relate to how intimidating and difficult writing a novel is, but also, and I want to ask you about this, how satisfying it is. Did you find that? Well, you know, I'm still sort of grappling with that because when I read my book and I've read it so many times because I, I was always published by big five publishers. I never really understood how much work went into self-publishing. <laughs> I didn't really understand the the uh, line edit process because they would just hand me something and I'd say yes, no. So now having read my book probably 500 times, I'm still astounded that it came out of me. Like, I, I often wonder, did I really write that sentence? Like, I am so thrilled. I'm so amazed that I honestly believe I was just used as a scribe, you know, because I don't believe that I'm that talented. And yet, I love my book. I And the people who have read it love the book. And, and in fact, I've got um, a producer who wants to turn it into a streaming series. And she says the book is Eat, Pray, Love meets Dirty John, which I, is exactly what it is. And that is such a Hollywood and effective way of describing it. It's, yeah, I could yeah. see that. Um, did you, since we're on the subject, did you come away with a newfound respect for the editors you worked with in the past? Oh, so utterly, totally, completely, because my book was re, I had to rewrite it several times because I wrote it during the pandemic and the there was this pandemic storyline. But by the time I got done writing it, nobody ever wanted to hear the word pandemic ever again. So, you know, everything had to get rewritten. But I have so much respect now for the process, for people who've gone to college to get you know, uh, a master's in writing. I, I mean, I'm just, 
almost embarrassed that I showed so many people my early pages when I <laughs> didn't know what I was doing. So, so it's, it's been a very humbling experience and, you know, um, and somebody keeps saying, well, what's the sequel going to be? And it's like the sequel's actually in the main book because I had completed one version of the book because I always knew what the sequel was going to be. And then when the pandemic hit and I thought, oh, my God, I'm over 60. I could die. I better write the write it now. So I now have a hundred and ten thousand word debut novel because <laughs> the sequel is all meshed in there. I, I relate entirely. When I wrote my novel in 1993 or four, uh, if you look at the cover, it says it's the first of a trilogy. And all these years went by and I kept finding excuses and now I'm working on it. And I said, I'm not, I can't write two more. So I unfolded the second and third together. And I understand the the impulse that you describe. I also understand what you said when you felt at times that it was coming through you. Did you find, as I do, I mean, that can happen even when you're writing nonfiction, when you're in a flow. But something different happens with fiction. You've created characters. And... Did you find, as I do, that there are times when they just start doing things and doing saying things? things. They talk to me. They nudge me. They wake <laughs> me up in the middle of the night. I missed, I missed a lunch with a very famous person one day because I got on the freeway and they were so busy talking to me. I ended up 30 miles away from where I was supposed to be. I mean, I, I have been taken over. And even though the book is done... I still think of them as my friends. And if I, and I need to, like, I miss them sometimes. Like, like what's Holly doing today? And, and I did a crazy thing last week. I went on to chat GBH, the, the AI thing. And, and I said to it, give me the outline for the sequel to the love thief. Oh, and then when I read the outline, it's like, I'm not going to live long enough to write that. And I threw it away. <laughs> don't be uh don't give in to the uh feeling as I have many times that oh I wish I could rewrite that now these characters seem to be wanting to do different things um now that hasn't happened thank god because that's not gonna happen <laughs> I'm not rewriting <laughs> I know that, which that's is one why of the reasons I self-published because I knew given the length of the book that a New York publisher is going to say, strike 30,000 words. Absolutely. And I didn't want to do that uh, because every word was precious and well thought out and, and carried the story forward. And and then I didn't want to, it's, it's a summer beach read. I didn't want to wait till summer 2024, knowing how long the process is. So I thought, I'm just going to self-publish. You know, that's all there is to it. I'm going to do it my way. And every time I heard a voice in my head saying, that's not how it's done, I was like, well, F you. That's how I'm going to do it. Well, and you have the advantage that many uh, self-published authors don't have, which is, you know how to publicize things. But the whole world has changed. You know, I left the business in 2004 before Uh, there was social media, you know, before all the talk shows went off the air. Uh, I left the business actually after 9-11 because that's when things changed so much because the world didn't want to talk to my spiritual self-help personal growth authors. They wanted to talk about wars in Afghanistan or God knows where. Uh, So I having to learn all over how to get the word out. And I haven't figured it out yet. But you have the skill set. I'm sure you will. Um, Let's get back to uh, the book itself. You went uh, on this research trip when the uh, business class fair manifested for you. What happened there that convinced you that you will go ahead with this? Well, in... In my movie, in my head, I saw that a lot of the magic happened inside of a spiritual bookstore. And I had a vision in my mind of what that would look like. And then one day I walked into that store and it was exactly 
like I expected to, it to be. And the proprietor looked exactly like the man in my head that was going to be what I called my love walla. The book was originally called The Love Walla. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I got tired of explaining to non-Indians, you know, what a walla is. So now it's The Love Thief, which is actually a better title. Oh, yeah. So things kept happening. Uh, Where was the bookstore? Uh, it's it's on the other side of the river from um, from Parmoth Nikitan, right near the the bridge. So near, so in, in, in Rishikesh for our listeners. It's in Rishikesh, yes. Um, the river the she's referring to is the Ganges, and there's uh, shopping areas. So in yeah, that, uh, yeah. And it all, you know, I because of the the jet lag that I had on my first morning there, I woke up starving and craving caffeine. And you know, things run really late in Rishikesh. The the little restaurant wasn't going to open till eight thirty, and so I went for a walk. And it was, you know, the sun was barely rising, and the river was rushing by, and I could hear chanting and bells behind me. And I turned around, and it was eight men in robes carrying a litter with a dead guru on it mm. as they were chanting. And and luckily I had my phone right there. I got it on video. And it's like, what a magical way to introduce Rishikesh to the reader. And then I saw the bookstore. It said, you know, spiritual bookstore. And I walked up the stairs and I saw that not only was it the bookstore, but it was the cafe overlooking the river. And so every step I took for those seven days, magic occurred. Every person I met is now a character in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to go to Vishesta's cave, right? Um, yeah. So, so Holly, who's a non-meditator, you know, ends up meeting somebody who takes her to Vishesta's cave and then, you know, shows her how she can get into the water. It's very shallow behind the cave and it was a warm, sunny day. And she has this whole Santosha experience in the river. So being there, for the even though I'd been to Rishikesh before, I was there with new eyes. Sure. And everything I saw, everything I did, everything I heard is in the book. With respect to Holly, the character, not you, you say she was not interested in spirituality. She was rebelling against the hippie parents. What then got her to Rishikesh? How do you get her there? Because she had experienced this heart, her her fiance had betrayed her with her best friend and business partner, and she got into a car accident and nearly died. So she had this trifecta of horrors happen to her within 24 hours. And as she was healing from her physical wounds, her emotional wounds weren't healing. And she had an auntie, an Indian-born, American-based auntie, who said to her, I have a cousin in Rishikesh that has a cooking school. You're a chef. I was going to give you $10,000 as a wedding gift. Now let me give it to you as a healing gift. Go to cooking school in Rishikesh. So Holly didn't know it was the spiritual hub of India. She didn't know it was the yoga capital of the world. She just thought she was going to cooking school. And one thing after another started to happen. And, you know, then she meets this bookstore owner who is a retired a professor of clinical psychology who had been raised in India, moved to Michigan, now is back in India, and he becomes her love walla, her guru, her confidant, her only friend in Rishikesh. And so every bit of spiritual wisdom I gleaned from all of my many clients and workshops I've gone to comes out of this man's mouth. (laughs) He's healing her on levels she doesn't know possible because she is so distraught thinking, you know, now I'm 38, my eggs are old, I'm never going to find love again. I don't even know what love is, because I thought what I had was love. So through all these experiences, she goes to RT, you know, Sadviji befriends her, you know, so our listeners may not know what RT is. Oh, okay. RT is the greatest live concert you can go to <laughs> every night at sundown along the Ganges. There are people chanting and praying and releasing little baskets with candles and flowers in them. And you're giving your pain and suffering to the river and asking for grace from 
all the all the pantheon of the Hindu gods and goddesses. And there's music. There's the tabla player and the sitar player, and it's just pure magic. And uh, so her friend, the love wallet, says to her, "You should go cross the river, sit sit at you know the feet of Swami Pujayaji and Swamiji." Uh, Sadviji, rather. And so she just ends up tripping over everything that's spiritual. And there's, you know, the the first trip I ever took to India was with Deepak Chopra. And we were at Ramana Maharshi's ashram about mm -hmm. to circumambulate Mount mm -hmm. Aruchala with a half a million pilgrims under the full moon of Pongal, barefoot. <laughs> and he says to me with this wicked little glint in his eye, he said, spirit is not difficult to find in India. It's impossible to avoid. Yeah, and he's right. Even in the big cities and amidst the turmoil and the craziness, but especially in places like where you were and in Rishikesh. You, you... Now, what's interesting, you mentioned Sadvi. Uh, listeners, this is uh, an American woman named Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati a friend of mine and of Ariel's. And uh, actually, if you go to the previous incarnation of Spirit Matters, there's at least one, maybe two interviews with her. And there's one with Ariel as well. Um, and she had a similar experience to your character because she went to Rishikesh, not thinking of it as a spiritual center, but because... She was told you can go there and hang out by the river and uh, be a vegetarian. Eat vegetarian food, right? Right. And so yeah. did you have that in mind when you... Uh... Oh, very much so. I mean, Sa Saviji is one of my best friends. So, you know, I, of course, know her story inside and out. And and I wanted Holly to have, you know, the healing experience of, of immersing yourself in Mahaganga and giving your pain to the river and being healed by it. So very much it's informed by it. And in my novel, there are two people that play themselves. Sadviji is a character in my book, but she's also a real person, as is Swamiji's. And then the rest of the characters are, are you know, um, a mashup of other people that I've known. Now, that's an interesting choice. And uh, when we uh, first talked about your book and coming on the show or email, uh, you mentioned that Sadvi was a character in the book. And as it happened, uh, not long after that, I was in Rishikesh and I said, hey, I hear you're a character in, in <laughs> Ariel's book. And uh, she approved of the treatment of her. So here's my question. It's it's not uncommon for people, for novelists to uh, insert real characters, real life figures into otherwise fictional settings in books. Usually they're dead and they're like famous. So, you know, Winston Churchill could show up and, you know, uh, famous architect was the one of the main characters in E.L. Doctorow's Ragtime. And, you know, things like that happen. And people do that. They write historical novels. So, you know, Caesar is a character and everybody else is made up. But you did it with uh, not only somebody who was living, but who was a friend of yours. Um, did you fret over how she might take it? Did you uh, show her stuff? Oh, she saw everything. And I actually interviewed her a lot so I could get her actual words. Because as you know, she does satsang every night after RT, you know, and I've sat there many times, but I, I wanted to um, get it in her own words. And uh, she, yeah, she read everything. She approved everything. And basically she gave me carte blanche. She said, she totally trusts me, whatever I want to say, I can say. And, you know, I've been to we had a magical meeting, Sadviji and I, uh, 12 years ago when I, I brought a group to India. We were at RT, and uh, at the end, the big arch entrance to the ashram, that's where my group was supposed to meet up. And as I was waiting for the group, I saw this 
American, obviously American holy woman. Oh, you had never met her? I'd never met her, didn't know who she was. I see. But I recognized her because I had seen her on an HBO special about (laughs) her and Swamiji that I'd watched many times. And I I sort of went, hey, hey, I know who you are. And she (laughs) turned around and she smiled and she said, would you like to meet the guru? And I said, yes. She said, follow me. I said, I have 12 friends. Bring them all. And the next thing I knew, we were sitting under this this little hut with (laughs) Pujaya Swamiji. And we were told we could ask anything and we would ask a question and Swamiji would look at her and tell her to answer. So she did all the talking. We were there for an hour. And then uh, she said, you must be hungry. Let me, let me feed you. And she took us to eat we were done eating. She said, Swamiji has gifts for you. Come back. We went back. They had, all kinds of great stuff for us. And then um, and then it was getting late and it was time to go. And so I pulled her aside. I said, would you ask Swamiji to say a special prayer? My sister's got cancer. Mm-hmm. Oh, ask him yourself. And she pulls me back there. And then they do this bunch of prayers and they give me prasad. And that was the start of this, you know, amazing friendship. And we're now like sisters. That's wonderful. And things have changed there a lot over the course of, uh, what did you say, 12 years. Um, I've taken groups there, and last time, just a few months ago, it was the it, it was much more crowded <laughs> than, than it had been in the past. That's yeah, great. they can sleep like a thousand people there. Yeah, but I mean, at, at the RT. Oh, RT? In the, yeah. yeah it was, but that's that's wonderful and uh, uh it's an interesting choice and uh, also an interesting choice is you're putting the spiritual wisdom into the mouths of a guy running a bookstore as opposed to uh a more predictable route which would have been to invent a swami and uh you know a guru figure you know which you know there's a tr- a small tradition of that going back to Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge in the 1940s, where there's a a guru figure modeled after Ramana Maharshi, actually. And that had a huge impact on me and other seekers back in the day. So you could have done that. You could have had a very wise except guru she would figure. have never gone to sit at his feet. That's the she yeah, was allergic. Good. But she she went to the bookstore because she was craving caffeine. She was looking for coffee. <laughs> and the bookstore owner offers her chai. And then she every morning she's waking up really early. And the only way she can get her caffeine fix is to go to the bookstore owner and chat with him. He's very kind. You know, she's was raised without a father. So he's got this sort of paternal vibe to him. And he's easy to talk to because he's been this professor of clinical psychology all these years. And and um, she she had recently watched the movie with, oh, God, um, Warren Beatty, where he he's a football player and he dies and heaven can wait. Yes. And and she she sees that the bookstore owner has, is reading conversations with God. And she says to him. She says to him, does God make mistakes? And and he said, what an interesting question. Why do you ask? And she explains the whole Heaven Can Wait movie. And he said, the reason I'm reading this book, Conversations with God, is because that's my biggest question. My wife, the love of my life, died of cancer a few years ago. And I'm trying to make sense of, does God make mistakes? And that's the start of their friendship. Nice. So good. There was a reason for it that suits the character and suits the circumstance, which is, which would mean it does. It won't come off as some contrivance. So good, good choice. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further 
allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24 through 26, at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. A lot of stories, well, especially if revenge is going to be a theme, is uh, they need a good bad guy. They need a good villain. And and we often, in reading novels and seeing movies, uh, remember the villain more than anything. <clears throat> How did you think through who the bad guy was? What did you draw on? to create the character, who is obviously, in addition to whatever else he does, must have been a very deceptive personality to have um, come across as Prince Charming in the first place. So where did he come from? How did you think? I knew him, okay? I knew two versions of him through two women very close to me who had a relationship with this type of character. And, and these characters, and I'll, I'll call them a sociopath, the traits of them is that they're they're usually attractive, very charismatic, really smart, and they prey on smart, beautiful women who are lonely. And they know exactly what to whisper into their ear to get them to fall in love. So they love bomb them. That's the technical term. They've been love bombed. Mm-hmm. And so they fall in love. And then the real version of them starts to show up and and it's horrible and it's heartbreaking because as the woman who's the victim here, you know, there's a good guy in there. You just had six weeks of the biggest romance of your life. And now suddenly it's gone. It's gone. And you're dealing with this this lunatic who's who's basically a criminal and they have a criminal background. So I knew this character this composite character really, really well. And I also knew the pain they put the woman through because I was the friend on the other end of the phone, listening them go on this roller coaster of rage and grief and rage and grief and self-doubt. And will I never love again? Will I ever trust again? What the hell is love? You know, and, Mm. and what's really interesting is that as I was writing the book up until about six weeks ago, I thought all of this came from me as a witness to others' behavior because I had buried a memory from my late 20s when I was was involved Uh with a man Uh like that. And I had completely blocked it out, forgotten it, uh, thought even if it popped into my head, oh, no, it's 40 years later, I'm totally healed. But I was also, I was able to access the level of excruciating pain because I had also lived it. But I, so I think at the end of the day, I wrote this book for me. Interesting. Um, We've seen characters like that in movies, psychological thrillers. uh, We, you know, where the woman ends up in jeopardy and has to fight her way out or there's a revenge plot. Uh, And I've seen many of these, and I have often wondered, um, how real is it? How much do these kind of men uh, surface in the lives of women in reality? You're suggesting it's more common than we might think. Well, there's a book written several years ago by a psychiatrist. It was called The Sociopath Next Door. Mm. And I had read it at the time one of my girlfriends was in the midst of all this. In fact, I locked her in my car and drove her for three hours to listen to the audiobook so she could get that this wasn't a one-off, that these men really exist. And according to this shrink, one in every 24 American men behave like this. So it's more common than you would think. And, and the thing that I've noticed around my circle of friends, my circle of friends tends to be very successful, very smart very new agey, single women. Mm. And they've all been through this or they've been married to this. Mm. And these men come to them because they're arm candy, they're attractive, and mostly they're famous, Mm. right? And then he steals their heart and their money. Mm. And I suppose there's degrees of uh, 
egregiousness in all this and some transgress in minor ways and some uh, cause great damage. Um, in addition to enjoying a good story, um, what do you hope people get out of the book? Well, a couple of things. Um, as somebody who is labeled a love and relationship expert, one of the biggest findings for me is that most people have no idea what love is. Mm. They believe that love is a feeling. I know that I love you because I'm swooning. It feels like there's champagne bubbles going through me. And they think the state of being in love is what love is, that love is a feeling. When in fact, the state of being in love is just nature's trick to get us to hook up and procreate. It has nothing to do with real adult mature love. Real mature adult love is a behavior. It's a decision. It's a choice. Mm. It's a way of being. And the feelings come and go. As anybody who's been married to their soulmate knows, you could love your partner and there will be days when you absolutely hate them. But it doesn't mean that you don't love them. So I think really understanding what love is and what it isn't is one of the messages of the book. I think also uh, the red flags, like Maya Angelou had this great line where she said, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. And these sociopath toxic narcissists show themselves right away, but we step over it. You know, because as soon as we complain, they come up with the story to justify the behavior. Oh, okay, I'm just making things up here because they're adept liars. So, and the other thing is, is that that you can heal from that level of pain and that there will come a time when you do survive being at the bottom of the pit where you wouldn't go back and change a thing because being in that level of suffering brought you to where you are today. But when you're suffering, you don't know that. You just think, I'm going to die. Right? How can I take this? And yet, you know, it's like, it is the greatest gift. And of course, now that I'm 70, in retrospect, I can see all of that. And it makes <laughs> sense. You know, when I was 30 and suffering, thinking I'll never love again, you know, I had no no realm of possibility. So you could have, and probably have in the past, uh, written about those themes in an instructive way for readers in a nonfiction book. Why do it in a novel? What did you think you could um, achieve for the readers um, in that form, as opposed to nonfiction? I had no choice about writing this book. I honestly had no choice. I didn't want to do it. Even when I got the proof that I was meant to do it, when I got the ticket and I got to India, and, and I remember sending my earliest pages off to, um, you may know Peter Gazzardi from Random House, right? I sent them to Peter, who, you know, is a genius and well-respected in the industry, and he wrote back and he said, girl, you can write, keep going. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, that. So every little step along the way, every time I wanted to quit, some sign would show up that I, you know, somehow before I took form in this body, I agreed to this. Right. So I never honestly felt like I had a choice but to write this book. Now that you've done it, I'll ask the question again. Now that you've done it and have read it over and over again, and you have the finished product, now can you see how people might get something out of it that couldn't be done in a nonfiction form? Completely. Yes, totally. Because you get, you know, in fiction, you 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 fall in love with the characters and you want to know what's going to happen next. That doesn't happen in nonfiction. You know, most nonfiction books, people don't get past page 20 and they stop <laughs> reading, right? They don't want to be instructed, you know, but, but with this, once you're in the story and I can't tell you how many of my friends said, you know, thanks to you, I didn't get any sleep last night. I had to stay up because I had to see what happened next. So, you know, I can see now in retrospect, what, 
what the um what what the takeaways are for people you know that that no matter how bad things are you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow you don't know what magic's going to happen you don't know where the next love is coming from and and you know that that hope reigns supreme and that karma really works because my villain gets it in the end big time and revenge does feel good you know and and you know i i I know a lot of spiritual people don't like the whole thing about revenge, but you know what? Trust me, when somebody screws you over the way he screws over Holly, it feels really good when he goes down. And you could make the case that um, in a situation like this, Holly is the instrument of karmic law and that uh, perhaps what came back to the bad guy uh, came back in a more humane form than would otherwise well we'll never know but the, the good news <laughs> is as a friend of mine likes to say karma never forgets an address correct everything we do as, as i've said is has a uh a self uh self-addressed return envelope attached to yes it. that's a good way to look <laughs> at it um the book has a profound spiritual theme. The character doesn't only learn about life and love, but um, gets gets herself onto a spiritual path. Otherwise, kicking you could, and screaming, you, <laughs> kicking you, and screaming. <laughs> but you could have said you could have done all that you described earlier and left out the spiritual stuff. It all could have taken place in LA or New York or someplace, and she could have had a, a bookstore owner there. But you you chose to put it in India and have this spiritual theme. Um, so how do you see all that you know about love and relationships? How does that relate to the spiritual search and the spiritual quest? Well, you know, I think that for Holly, even though she wasn't on a spiritual search, she was looking to make sense of what happened to herself. She was trying to understand how she spent 38 years of her life thinking love was one thing, only to discover that it was something else. And the other part of it was having grown up without a father, she was also searching for a father figure. And she was able to see when she was in India where nothing made sense to her, nothing was familiar, that that there's magic in the universe and that there's justice in the universe. And that just by placing herself in this place where the veils are so thin, which is Rishikesh and the foothills of the Himalayas, you know, around all this chanting and goodness and the kindness of people there, that that she found herself welcoming something that she didn't believe in. And, and it also made her closer to her mom because she, she'd always dissed her mother who was always, you know, spouting new age little <laughs> ditties here and there. And suddenly she was saying, Oh my God, I just had the experience my mother would kill for, you know, when she has her, her experience in the river and, and the pain leaves her. And, and one of the most fun parts of the book that I read was, you know, she kept waiting for the pain to come back. And finally, the bookstore owner explains to her, she says, remember when you were a little kid and you lost a tooth and your tongue's always looking for the wiggly tooth and it's not there? She goes, let go of the pain. It's not there. It's gone. Quit looking for it. Because even she couldn't believe that she had experienced a great healing. Interesting. And um, does she have what we would think of as uh, spiritual experiences? Does she learn methods, that, the kind of methods that we're all familiar with and techniques and practices and so forth? Do you have her doing that? Um, she, she does eventually learn how to meditate, but not a mantra meditation, but she has more of a respect and an appreciation for the things that happen to her. And she doesn't really understand them, but because she's out of the physical and emotional pain, 
she is more accepting of the unknowable. So she's really, by the end of the book, she's really at the beginning of her spiritual journey. Uh -huh. If there's a sequel, we'll find out if there's more. <laughs> Don't know about that yet. But really, it was just, you know, she she was just sort of following the breadcrumbs. It wasn't like she woke up and said, oh, I've got to find a way to heal myself. She was just couldn't take being in excruciating pain. And her auntie gave her the first step. Go take a cooking class in India. And that one thing led to another. I love that uh, needing a caffeine fix in, in Rishikesh uh, leads to a lot because I have caffeine stories. <laughs> from India. The I'll other thing I, is that there are recipes in the book. I noticed that. Right, because she's in cooking school, so so the recipes are actually in the book, including a, a chai recipe, which my Indian friends have told me is a hundred percent authentic. <laughs> okay, um, some of your nonfiction books. I want to segue to your identity as the um, Cupid of Consciousness, as you've been called. Um, <clears throat> Some of uh, your titles have the word soulmate in them. How do you understand that term? Do soulmates actually exist? Do people have, people imagine there's the one uh, soul out there that, you know, the twin flame that they're destined to find? Or well, there's a difference. So I don't talk about twin flames, and I can explain why in a second. But for me, a soulmate is somebody you can completely be yourself with, somebody with whom you share unconditional love. And when you look into their eyes, you have the experience of being home. Uh -huh. And if you accept that definition, then we all have many soulmates, you know, not just our romantic partners, but our parents, our children, our siblings, our co-workers, our neighbors, our cats, our dogs. Good. And so is there just one soulmate? No, that's just a big fat lie that you only get one. And in fact, I believe that soulmates can and do get divorced mm. because a soulmate relationship sometimes comes with an expiration date. And mm. it doesn't mean that they're still not your soulmate. It's just that, that that error is over, that 20 years and three kids is over, and now you move on and there's no reason not to be friends. And just people think that if you get divorced, you have to stop loving somebody, which is ridiculous. You don't need to stop loving anybody. You can just agree that, hey, we had a great run. We had 20 years. We had 30 years. We had six and a half months, whatever it was, you know, and they can still be your soulmate. But a twin flame is this belief that it's your other half. Yeah. You know, it's that, yeah. that story. Uh, God, what was that guy from from Plato's symposium? And he told the story about the, the beings that I call the roly polies that have, you know, four arms and four legs and two heads. And Zeus came down and cut them in half and threw their parts to the ends of the earth. And that's what you're looking for is that real true other half. I don't know if twin flames exist, you know, but that's like looking for a needle in a haystack. I believe that there are 8 billion people on the planet. Half of them are single. There are lots of potential soulmates out there for you, you know, and it's a choice. You can choose to love who you love. This whole thing, I'm just waiting for the feeling. Yeah, well, the feeling's not going to last. I can promise you that. It's going to come and go. So why don't we get serious and look at what does it take to have a long-term, healthy, committed, monogamous relationship? And there's basically five elements. You need connection, compatibility, good communication, a little bit of chemistry, but chemistry is not the biggest part. The biggest part is a shared vision for the future. Hmm. I want children. You want children. I like to travel. You like to travel. You know, just some of the big things. You don't have to be totally identical. You know, you want to play golf three times a week. Great. I want my book club over twice a month. Great. That's not the important part. But using your head to choose a good heart partner is critical to the process. And if you're just counting on the feelings, you're going to be massively disappointed. Well, I'm so glad I asked the question because, and I'm sure some of my listeners are in this category, but I know so many people 
who went astray thinking desperately they have to find that one person they were, you know, they're hoping would be the, uh, I'd hate to use the word Prince Charming, but the one, you know, the happily ever after soulmate. That, that their, I, I like to call it happily even after. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Which brings me to uh, Wabi Sabi Love. Uh, when I saw the title in your bio, I said, oh, I have to ask her about that, because as it happens, I love that concept. You can explain that it comes from Japanese art. And um, I have and I, I told you I'm working on a novel and I just used it in a metaphorical sense in the novel, not Wabi Sabi Love, but the, the concept of Wabi Sabi. Tell us what you mean by it. Well, tell us what sure. Wabi Sabi so, is. So Wabi Sabi is this ancient Japanese concept that seeks to find beauty and perfection in imperfection. So let's say that this is this is a Ming vase and it's got a long crooked crack down the middle of it. The Japanese would take this broken vase, put it on a pedestal and shine a spotlight on the crack. And when I learned the concept, I fell madly in love with it because I knew I wasn't perfect, right? <laughs> but I was always striving for perfection, which, of course, we know is impossible, but we look for it anyway. And after I got married, you know, because I didn't know all this stuff 25 years ago when I got married. After I got married and I started to discover that, did I know he was my soulmate? Yes, on a lot of levels, I knew he was my soulmate. But how do I explain on the days I want to kill him? You know, like I don't quite understand that part of it. And I realized that I had no partnership skills. I had been an entrepreneur, owned my own business. I was great at being the boss, not good at being a partner. And so I started, you know, thinking about wabi-sabi, like, could I be more wabi-sabi in the relationship? And what would that look like? Because I've discovered he's not perfect. He's discovering I'm not perfect, and yet we've just taken sacred vows to spend our life together. How does this work? And and so I we started doing stuff uh, that really made sense. Like I remember one day early in our relationship, I've got my hand on my hip, and I'm I'm like this. I don't know what I'm ragging on him about, but I catch myself, and I'm thinking, "Ooh, look who you've become! What is this?" And I stopped, and I said to him. I said to him, I want to apologize. And, and I want to tell you that this could happen again. I tend to be bossy and overbearing. But when I get like that, could you just kindly, gently say to me, when did Sheila enter the room? Now, Sheila was my mother's name, and I loved and adored my mother. But she also was bossy and overbearing. And Brian just laughed and laughed, and he totally got it. And he said to me, yes. And when I get too patronizing, you can call me Wayne. That was his dad's name. And so I thought, oh, there's a wabi-sabi solution. Rather than having World War III, he can take me down 10 notches and just say, oh, I, I see Sheila. Sheila's here. I'll say, oh, I see Wayne's here. And then we would laugh. And we started doing that. So eventually, um, after I'd written my book, The Soulmate Secret, my publisher came to town one day and said, okay, it's time for another book. Oh no, I'm not writing any more books. I'm, I've, I've said everything I need to say. I'm not writing another book. And uh, she said, okay, well, just pretend if you were going to write a book, just pretend, what would it be? And I said, well, there's this thing called Wabi Sabi Love. I said, it doesn't really exist in Japan. Nobody would ever say Wabi Sabi Love. There are no books on Wabi Sabi. I mean, there might be two, but for the most part, there's not a lot of books on Wabi Sabi. And so I have no source material to write this book. And she gave me a huge contract to write it anyway. Wow. <laughs> and so then I was like, I called my friend, Jean Houston. I was like, Jean, I'm screwed. I've made an agreement to write a book. I don't know how to write. You got to help me. And she said, okay, take a deep breath, close your eyes. And she took me on this little visual journey. And, and, and she said to me at one point, well, what do you see? I said, well, there's this big dragon. And the dragon has a, a, a Japanese man next to him. Oh, 
ask him his name. I asked him his name and I don't remember what his name was now. And Jean said, oh yes, he's a good friend of mine. He's a good guy. Okay. And what's, what's the dragon doing? Oh, the dragon's got a big pearl in its mouth. She said, fine, I get it. Okay. So Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Hamoto so-and-so is going to be your guide when writing this book. And the pearl is that it's the annoyance that becomes the pearl within the oyster. And that's what wabi-sabi love is. You look for the annoyance and turn it into enjoy. Go from mm. annoyed to enjoy. So suddenly I had some context for it. And every day I would sit in front of my desk and it's like, okay, God, help me. <laughs> what am I going to write about? Because And crazy things would happen. Like I remember one day uh, Psychology Today arrived and it had a story uh, about uh, a study that had been done at a university on on couples that choose to wear rose-colored glasses and why they're happier and they live longer because they're always looking for what's right instead of looking for what's wrong. And, and another day I talked to Jerry Jampolsky and I was telling him about this thing and he said, oh, I've got a great wabi-sabi story for you. And he told me this story that is sort of the hallmark of the whole book. Uh, and so it just slowly came to me and and I still use it all the time. It's like when I get annoyed about something, it's like, well, what's wabi-sabi about this? What's the beauty in this imperfection? Yeah. And it's a life-changing thing. I'm going to tell you one really quick story from a workshop that really explains it to people. So I had this woman stand up in a workshop on wabi-sabi and she says to me, I have a problem even you can't solve. I was like, great. What is it? She said, well, my name's Stephanie, and I've been married to Garth for 16 years, and I'm a perfectionist. I'm a clean freak. I'm an everything-in-its-place kind of person. And my husband is a total messy, sloppy, chaotic slob. And the only reason we're still together right now is that he has a job that takes him out of state two weeks of every month. So when he's gone, the house is perfect. I'm happy. He comes home. Three hours later, things are a mess. I can't take it anymore. And I said to her, do you have a dog? And she said, yes. I said, does your dog shed? She said, yes. I said, what do you do when your dog sheds? She said, I vacuum up after him. And I said, do you love your dog? And she got really quiet. And she said, oh, my God, Garth sheds. <laughs> and a year later, I'm writing a book called Turn Your Mate Into Your Soulmate. And I remember this story. I got to find this woman. I got to find out, was that an aha moment or did anything change or are they divorced? So I called a producer of the event up in Idaho and it's like, I know this is a long shot. I had 300 people in this workshop and there's this woman named Stephanie who's married to a guy named Garth and I have to find her. And she said, no problem. She's my best friend. So I get Stephanie on the phone and I say to her, how are things? And she has this like dreamy voice. Oh my God, they've never been better. Garth quit his out-of-state job so we could be together 24-7. And yes, he's still a slob. That's beautiful. That's why um, we saw love. I love it. Um, it's, it's a wonderful concept. Um, and uh, the way you've applied it makes an awful lot of sense. I have one more question for you in the few minutes we have. Um, this is Spirit Matters. I'm looking at you on the screen. Listeners will only have the audio. Um, and above your head are three spiritual teachers. One is Puja Swami, who we discussed earlier, who's active in Rishikesh. And the other is the woman we call Amma, Amritanandama, <laughs> and um, a.k.a. the Hugging Saint. And the third is Yogananda who's actually above my shoulder too. Um, tell us about your spiritual life and why those three people. Well, Yogananda, uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, was my introduction to this world. I was, it, was, uh, it was the spring of 1985, and I was at the Bodhi Tree, and <laughs> I ended up buying that book, and it changed my life. And then many years later, uh, somebody introduced me to Ama, and I became an Ama devotee. And actually, Ama married Brian and I in a Hindu ceremony oh. 25 years ago. And then when I met um, Sadhviji, 
that was at the Paramath Nikitan Ashram in Rishikesh after RT. And she introduced me to Swami G, who who then she brought to our home two different times, which yeah. was mind blowing. And the thing that I love about all three of them is the pure authenticity of grace that they emanate and the light that they do. And they're not out selling anything and they're not, they're not promising anything. They're just the embodiment of love. And you can be with them and feel that. So I have them behind me, blessing me all day long. And what you can't see is there's Lakshmi. And then I've got a whole, I've got a whole pantheon of <laughs> the Hindu it. gods and goddesses behind me. Um, because why not? You know, why not be reminded? I think I have, I have a picture of Amma and Swamiji in every room in the house. So everywhere I go, I am reminded that at the end of the day, I just want to be love. That's a great way to end, Ariel. Uh, any final uh, word for our listeners? Yes. For anybody who's single and doesn't want to be, your mantra should be, there's no shortage of love in the world. There is no shortage of love in the world. There's no shortage of love in the world. And you can read a good novel, The Love yes. Thief. TheLoveThief.com, yes. Go to LoveThief.com, look up Ariel on online. Is it ArielFord.com? Yes. And um, thank you for listening, everybody. Please subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends about it. Email me with suggestions. Go to my website. Check out what I'm up to. And... Um, Stay in touch. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Ariel, for being with Thank us. Thank you. This was so much fun. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind, Body, Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.